0: Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. At the age of 20, I set off to seminary. I was on my way from Florida to Princeton, New Jersey, and I stopped at my grandmother's house in Edenton, North Carolina. I have roots in this area, by the way. And I was sitting, sitting one evening at the table with her, and we were talking, and she just started telling me things. And she commented, you know, whenever I see the young lawyer who's handling your grandfather's estate, I get so, so angry, I just can't stand it. She was really miserable. You could see it in her eyes, see it in her face. And she said, I don't understand. He's been, so, he's, <clears throat> he's been so helpful and considerate. But I dread going to see him. And I stay all knotted up inside for days afterwards. Well, at 20, I hadn't had a lot of training in this kind of thing. But I, was, I got to thinking about it as we were sitting together, and I said, well, if he hasn't given you any reason to be mad at him, maybe he's not really the one you're mad at. Maybe you're mad at somebody else. Somebody, I guess, that you think you can't be mad at. And he says, well, I don't know who I might be mad at. I thought a moment and said, well, how about granddaddy? Granddaddy Warner. Because he went off and died and left you here. (laughs) Alone. And she said, well, it's not like he wanted to go. And I said, well, of course. But the heart's got its own rules. Doesn't always make logical sense. I don't know, but if I'm right, means you feel abandoned somewhere you've got this anger it's bottled up inside and you're trying to find some place to let it out you got to find a target for it so i thought i paused a moment let that sink in and then i said well did you and granddaddy lie awake at night and talk before going to sleep just talking there in the darkness and she said well yeah I said well you might want to try this some evening after you turn out the light talk to Papa Warner like you used to out loud like he was right there and tell him how you feel about him going and abandoning you like that tell him off Tell him off good, and when you finish telling him off, I said, this is important, then tell him out loud you forgive him. She gave me a kind of skeptical look, and then shrugged, well, I'll think about it. Human emotions have their own logic that respects neither common sense nor convictions. Love may be blind, but so is anger. Anger is a spontaneous, natural response. Anytime you have stress, or anxiety, or fear, or injustice, or disappointment, or danger, or physical, or emotional pain, or loss, or grief, you're going to have anger as well. I was talking about this back before the whole holidays began, and we were sort of, I was talking about pain, Loss, grief, talking about fear and anxiety, and starting to touch on anger, and that all got kind of interrupted by the incarnation. I don't know, that's, there's probably a, a sign in that somewhere, that whenever you're feeling those things, as soon as Jesus comes into the picture, it sort of interrupts things. Having said that, and if you don't get anything else out of that ser- this sermon, you can take that with you for the week, okay? But I do want to get back to this because as I come into a church in transition, these are gut emotional issues that we all deal with, and it's important just to get it out on the table. It's very healing to get it out on the table. Now, the reason you have this spontaneous response of anger is there's a biological reason for it. And I've touched on this before, but for those who missed it or those who have forgotten it, let me touch on it again. On the underside of the brain, there lies this, the limbic system. It's a tangle of glands and nerve knots with odd names like the amygdala and the, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the hippocampus which, as I, you may remember, it sounds like a Serengeti University. That's your panic button. That's your panic button. Center for self-preservation, for uh, where you assess danger. It's where you feel three key survival emotions. Fear, pain, and anger. Fear, pain, and anger. And the thing is, those three centers touch. In your brain, so when one reacts, it triggers the other two as well. You hit your thumb, as I pointed out, you hit your thumb with a hammer, and that shot of pain makes you yell something you wouldn't want me to repeat here right now. (laughs) Hallelujah. Yeah, I'll (laughs) believe that when I hear it. I wish, I wish. When we get to that point, we've actually gotten someplace. But something's going to come out, and you're going to throw that hammer across the room. Now, that's not an act of pain. That's not an act of anxiety. That is an act of anger. Right? Pain triggers anger. Anything that triggers pain or anxiety is going to trigger anger as well. And right up front, it's biological. It's okay. I'll talk about more about that in the future. So everyone experiences anger from time to time in their lives. It's an automatic response. Some people shake it off. Some people make a habit of it. Seems to me, when I look around, that American culture is becoming a very angry place. Our political divide, regardless what side you're on, when you really look at it, it seems to be driven more by anger than it does really by reason or philosophy. It's, we're moving into the politics of emotions drive-by shootings, road rage, express some kind of anonymous social anger, which is hunting for an outlet. Now, I don't know, is the anger actually growing in our culture, or do we simply have, currently have no communally shared target for our national anger, you know, like a common enemy abroad or something like that? Do we just not know what to do with our anger, or or is the anger getting worse? I don't know. Now, Christians live then in an angry world, and we're not immune from anger. We're told in the Bible that even Jesus got angry a couple of times, justifiably, but even Jesus could get angry. Churches experience anger as well. And the history of KPC amply affirms what I say, and I'll be returning to that in a couple of weeks to talk about that. What happened, how it happened, why it happened, what can we do about it now to move forward? Generally, churches in transition are always going to have to deal with some kind of anger, some amount of anger, you know, think, think with me. You know, some folks are angry at the pastor who left. If they loved him, they're mad because he left, because he went and abandoned them. You know, they feel jilted maybe. Or maybe they're mad at other church members that they blame for having run off the pastor. Or if they hated the pastor, they're mad at him for not leaving sooner. And you're going to have people right across the aisle from each other who are mad for completely di- at the old pastor for completely different reasons. And they might even be mad at each other over it too. But ultimately, those are all really kind of excuses. The real problem is that really people don't like significant change in their lives. There's too much change out there. Please don't change anything here. Here, at least, maybe we can find the stability we can't find out there in the world. But change is going to happen. There's coming, there's going, there's births, there's deaths. Change is going to happen. And if we don't like change, we're going to react with some kind of, or some amount of anger. The uncertainty of this in-between time, here floating in the gray zone, heightens that sense of anxiety, and anxiety triggers feelings of irritability. I preached on this once, and I even had the session come up to me and said, Pastor, we're really irritated that you're preaching on anger. You're being far too negative. I told them what to do about it and how to, but that that didn't matter. You're talking about anger at all. Well, guess what? That was an anger response on their part. And you're not always sure where those feelings are coming from. So we have a spontaneous emotional response, kind of like an emotional knee-jerk. And then we try to make sense of it. You know, the gut feelings come first, and then we try to figure it out. The logical reasons come later. Now, while all of us, that's just sort of preparation, all of us get angry from time to time, but church folks, most church folks, especially here in the South, we think anger is inappropriate. Good Christian folks don't get angry. You know what I mean? We don't like who we are. We don't like who we become when we get angry. So when we do get angry, we deny it. Try to act like nothing's wrong. You know, like maybe you just smile. You know, that grimace. It looks like you're actually in pain and pretend that nothing's wrong. Oh, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Try to think happy thoughts. Or else, another way, how about you gruffly demand that everybody forget about the past as if there was no unfinished emotional business. Oh, well, let's just move on. Ignore it. Do you think it's going to go away? No, obviously not. There's still that knot inside. There's a tightness you can see in the corner of the eyes and at the back of the jaw. That's anger denied. Dr. Robert Enright of the International Forgiveness Institute Has observed that when you close your eyes to your anger, he says, let me quote him, it becomes an active process of creating misery for yourself. Did you hear that? Does it hurt the other person? Usually not. It becomes an active process of creating misery for whom? For yourself. Would you say those three words with me again? Misery for yourself. See, anger avoided is not resolved. It's only gonna fester, and it's gonna emerge somewhere else in one of two ways. You can either transfer it to somebody else outside. You know, we redirect our anger against someone else, an innocent scapegoat maybe, to vent that inner pressure. Find somebody to blame, because somewhere in the back of our brain, we think that if we hurt them, it might not solve the problem, but it'll make us feel better. We can vent it and get it out. But you can imagine how, discru- how destructive that turns out to be in your life, in your family, and how incredibly destructive it is when you let it loose in the church, A church can weather any crisis except the anger that, the unchecked anger that results from the crisis. Do you hear me? A church can weather any crisis except the unchecked anger that, rea- that reacts and responds and comes as a consequence of. That crisis. You can transfer it outward or you can internalize it. You turn it inward on yourself. Blame yourself. Feel guilty without cause. You do things to hurt or sabotage yourself. You stay fuzzy and confused. You might sink into depression. You become chronically ill or maybe apathetic or just run away. While some chronic depression is caused by chemical imbalances in the brain, most of the depression that people feel is simply anger turned inward. Did you hear me on that? Most of the depression that people struggle with in their lives is because of anger turned inward. And the best resolution is to get it back out and get rid of it. When we allow it to fester, anger is a very destructive emotion. Proverbs warns us, and throw out a few scriptures here for those taking notes. Proverbs 27 4. If you forget to write it down, then that's all right. Just go ahead and read all the way through Proverbs. It'll still, even if you don't find that verse, you'll find lots that will help you. Proverbs 27 warns us wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. We're also warned in another place, don't make friends with someone who's given to anger because you'll catch it and it'll destroy you. The epistle of James agrees, and you're going to hear this from me again and again and again. I will not apologize for that. Human anger does not produce God's righteousness. I wish we in the church could finally learn that lesson. Human anger does not produce God's righteousness. It only only destroys. It only destroys. Now, anger itself is not a sin. Anger by itself, as a spontaneous response, is not a sin. But what you do when you're angry usually is. Do I hear an amen on that? You remember what happened when Moses, this is a familiar story, I won't read it, but Moses left the Hebrews in the wilderness. It's in Exodus chapter 32. He's going up to the mountain to get the terms of the covenant of God. He's barely out of sight. And the people start grumbling. And they say, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. Do you hear that? That's what it says in the text. We don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. Is it, oh, where is our beloved leader? <laughs> oh, no, it's this, this, that guy, Moses. Now, they probably didn't say Guy. But separation triggers anxiety. Anxiety triggers anger. And so they're going to get back at that fellow Moses for abandoning them here in the wilderness where they don't know where they are or where they're going. He's abandoned them, so they're going to sabotage what he was trying to teach them. And that unfortunate golden calf incident... Was driven, at least in part, by anger, which was transferred to Moses. That's transference. The second example is David grieving for Absalom, his son. Let's take a look quickly. I'd like to get us out of here before two this afternoon. <laughs> second Samuel chapter 18 2nd Samuel chapter 18 and we're going to start at verse 31, uh, 31. there it is and the Cushite came This is a messenger. And the Cushite said, good tidings for my lord the king, for the lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all those who rose up against you. King said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept and as he went he said, oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. We could go on, we'll, we'll stop there. Absalom had mounted a violent revolt against his father. He was out to kill David. He was trying to kill David and take the kingdom. And he was winning. Now when David hears the revolt has been crushed and Absalom is dead, you would think he would be relieved. Relieved that he escaped with his life and grateful to his troops for their loyalty, for their warcraft. Instead, and if you keep reading on, it just goes on and on, David wallows in excessive and dramatic grief. He's in depression. He even, almost near suicidally, wishes that he had died instead in Absalom's place. It's a self-loathing mourning, and it's just too much. It's over the top. He's acting out something way more acute and destructive. This isn't grief anymore. It's all anger turned inward. Anger turned inward. Now, we're always going to look for a target for our anger. Anger. Even if we're angry at, well, angry at life. You know, it's hard to get angry at life. Gonna shake your hand, life. Mm. So we look for someone to blame. It's that boss of mine. It's that neighbor. It's that person who keeps writing, complaining letters to the city council about about the flags and the planters and the gnomes on my yard. It's that, why, it's God. Jesus didn't say a lot about anger, particularly in itself. But Jesus did warn us about its consequences, the trail of broken relationships and resentments and bitternesses that it leaves in its wake. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, what? Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's put this in context. Matthew has just given us his version of the Lord's Prayer. That's the one we know when we pray it. And there we've been told, among other things, to pray, forgive us our debts, As we forgive our debtors. And Matthew wants to make sure that you and I get that point. He doesn't follow up the Lord's Prayer with with some teachings of Jesus about daily bread. He could have done that. Or about resisting temptation. He could have done that. No, he follows it up with sayings of Jesus about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And unforgiveness. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Don't forgive, and you won't be forgiven. It's simple math. Jesus said, don't judge, and you won't be judged. Forgive, you'll be forgiven. You get what you give. If you hang on to your anger, then God's anger is going to hang over you. And I guarantee that God's anger is going to have far worse consequences for you than your anger is ever going to have for whoever you might be angry at. Most of the people we're angry at, do they care that we're angry at them? No. Does it really hurt them that we're angry at them? Usually not. There might be a few. If God's angry with you, though, you're in trouble. Just saying. The word Jesus uses for forgiveness here, and in most of the passages about anger and forgiveness in the Gospels, is afiemi, I know that just rings a bell with all of you. Afiame. Originally, afiame meant to, to uh, throw away, to get rid of something. You know, drag it out to the curb, put it in the trash can. And it beca- later it became a legal term, meaning to acquit, or maybe better we should say, to drop charges. You're throwing it away, getting rid of it dropping charges in property law it meant specifically to cancel to remit or write off a debt you don't say it was okay it's just i'll never i'll never collect this one it's okay there go just i'll write it off it wasn't a religious term until it got picked up and used in the greek translation of the old testament for forgive and forgiveness and Jesus used it as a religious term, as a, as a key religious term for him. To forgive, when Jesus uses, uses it, means to write it off, to dismiss the charges, to let it go. Just let it go. Now, We need to avoid reading this to think it means that forgiveness is a precondition for God's forgiveness. As if you have to take the first step and then God's going to reward you for doing the right thing. But instead, I think we need to see that forgiveness is the obligatory consequence. Obligatory consequence of God's forgiveness for you, That is, first, God forgives, and then, well, what can you do except forgive others, too? If you understand God's forgiveness, you can't help but be forgiving as well. Let's look at Matthew 18. I know we're covering a lot of material, but this is so, so, so important to the life of this and every church. And as we talk about in a few weeks... You'll see why we have to cover so much of this and why it's so important. Matthew 18, we'll start at 23. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered, ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him. You'll notice the exact same words Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. And then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be, what? Tortured. Not nice. Until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Two servants. One owes his master (coughs) 10,000 talents. Well, let me explain what that means, since we don't deal with talents every day. One talent, one talent, represented the total wages of an average worker over a period of about 15 years. One talent, 15 years total wages. Gross. When it's 10,000 talents, you do the math. So a call to account, he begs, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. Yeah, right. In about, oh, mm, 5,000 lifetimes. The master takes pity and writes off this absolutely enormous national debt. It's like a national, little national debt right there. The forgiven servant, though, right as he walks out, he seizes another servant who owes him a measly 100 denarii, which is about three months' wages. Three months' 15 entire lifetimes. Mm. Throws him in debtor's prison until his family can ask around and try and scrape up enough money to pay off the debt and get get him out of prison again. If the contrast is ridiculously outrageous, well, that's Jesus' point. If you have received extravagant mercy, not just mercy, extravagant mercy... How can you withhold mercy from anyone else? Of course, once the master hears what happens, he hauls the selfish servant back into court, reinstates the original debt, not only throws him into prison but hands him over to the torturers. By this time, when he mentions the torturers, if it hasn't been clear, it should be clear by now, that Jesus is not talking about an earthly master and an earthly dad. He's talking about the final judgment. Forgiveness, therefore, is not a prerequisite for receiving mercy, but it is an obligation and a consequence once you have received mercy from the living God. When God forgives you and grants you mercy, You have to be gracious and merciful with others. You see, God has every reason to be angry with us, each and every one of us. Look at how we've treated him. And we do it generation after generation. What we did to his prophets, look to what we did to Jesus Christ. That was you doing that. That was me doing that to him. Change the names, but the, the core emotions, the anger, the rage remains the same. That's what our anger did to almighty God. But he took that anger on himself so we can be freed of it. God knows how destructive anger is. He's chosen grace because of what Jesus underwent for you and for me. And God has chosen to forgive. To let it go. Which means you can choose grace. You can choose to forgive and move on. So what What we've seen is anger is a fact of human life. It just is. It means as much as you choose to invest in it emotionally, and it lasts as you choose to let it last. It may be insidious, but anger is so easy to cure. You know what you do? You forgive. I didn't say you feel like forgiving. Jesus never said you have to feel like forgiving. He just said just do it. Just let it go. Let it go. Let me jump I'm going to jump over this next one. So you don't have a choice not to forgive. Now, a, there was a poll by the Fetzer in Fet's, Fetzer, I can say this, Fetzer Institute. They discovered 60% of Americans, that's roughly 2 out of every 3 roughly 2 out of every 3 believe that you can forgive someone only after that person apologizes. How many of you think that? Don't want to admit it, huh? But I know you do. Two out of three think they have to apologize. Oh, it's easy to say, no, no, it's all right. But when you're the one who's mad, no, you're going to want an apology. You're going to want an apology. They have to apologize. There's no apology. They don't deserve forgiveness. They're not going to get, you can't even do it. It's not possible. But the problem is that's untrue. It is a lie. It's a lie we tell ourselves. And it's that very lie that keeps us from being able to forgive. In fact, it's not even a smart idea. I mean, that person might not know or even care that they hurt me. And I'm going to wait for an apology from them? (laughs) Oh, What happens if I require an apology, I am putting that other person in control over whether or not I can forgive and move on. The person who hurt or offended me now controls my emotions and my future. Now, is it just me, or does that seem like a... Does anyone else here see how messed up that is? Talk to me. I mean, that's messed up to me, that I put someone else in charge of my emotions, my freedom, and my future. I'm going to be the one who decides what my emotions are going to do. And if someone apologizes, Jesus says, you must. He doesn't say you might, you could. He says, you must forgive if they apologize. But, you know, I don't need an apology to choose to let go and forgive. Did Jesus get an apology from the people that put him on the cross? But what did Jesus do? He prayed forgiveness over them while they were still crucifying him. Don't tell me you have to have an apology to let go and forgive. So to wrap it up, oh, I see that collective sigh, finally. Forgiveness is something you resolve all on your own. It's been said that forgiveness is the gift you give yourself. And it's very true. And Jesus, who forgave you, will gladly help you forgive others and get rid of that anger and make you free again. Now, you might want to go out and vet it. This is just a practical advice from, from me. You know, take some time, vent it, express it. You know, write a letter you never send, and then never send it. (laughs) Have a heart-to-heart with an empty chair. Uh, One thing you might even want to do if you're really mad at somebody, envision that they're in that chair, tell them off, and then beat that chair, a straight chair preferably, with a Nerf bat. Just get it out. One of my favorites is I'll I'll get a piece of chalk and I'll go out to the wood pile and I write names on the pieces of wood in the wood pile and then I chop firewood. (laughs) However you do, by yourself, get it out. Acknowledge it. Get it out once you've let it out, then pray and forgive. And I'm going to tell you right up front, say it out loud. Say the name and speak forgiveness over them out loud. Now, not where necessarily everybody else hears it. But for you, you'll hear it, God hears it. It's out there in space and time. It's nailed down. I have chosen to forgive and let go. Do it in Jesus' name, unclench that fist, and watch the anger melt away. A month, real quick, just a month after our conversation, my grandmother wrote me to say that she took my advice. She said she felt a little silly doing it, but lying there in the dark, she told off my grandfather. (laughs) I I just picture it. It's hard for me to keep a straight face. She told him off for leaving her there alone, and then she forgave him, and you know what? She didn't feel any different. But about a week later, she had an appointment with the young estate lawyer. And she wrote, he's such a pleasant young man. (laughs) We had a nice meeting. And my anger is gone. As we pray, I want to invite the altar ministers to come down front. And then as we sing our closing song, if you know you have anything against anybody if you have anger and you're not even sure who or what you're angry at or about i want to invite you to come down front to pray and let go of it there's no reason you take any of it with you out those doors ever again let's pray lord what a price you paid for us For our forgiveness, Lord, bring to our mind anyone that we are holding a grudge against or bitterness or resentment or anger and prick our heart so we can find find it in our hearts to let go and forgive to set them free for the future you have for them and to be free for what you have for me next. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.